Hey, we are in the second week of a series where uh, we are going through the book of Ephesians. And uh, the book of Ephesians actually is not a book. Uh, it's actually a letter. And it's a letter written by a guy named Paul who was in prison at the time. And uh, the series that we're going through is called A Letter from Prison. And basically, uh, Paul wrote a lot of letters from prisons to uh, from prison to uh, lots of different churches uh, that he had planted and uh, had ministered to. And many times in these letters, he would be writing uh, because there was an issue. There was a doctrinal problem or a theological problem. There was some false teaching going on. There was some bickering happening, things like that. But uh, in his letter to Ephesus, the church in Ephesus, uh, he's actually writing a letter uh, of encouragement, and it was a church that he had planted and uh, had helped grow, and he was just reaching out and connecting with them. Now, in Scripture, it's very important to uh, try to understand the context in which uh, the, the writer is coming from. Um, you know, the Word of God is inspired, but it's inspired through people, through their lens, through uh, their experiences and, and their culture and things like that. So it's very important for us to kind of understand the, the mindset of Paul when he was writing the letter um, of Ephesians to the church in Ephesus. And uh, personally, I've never been in prison um, so I was trying to, really when I was reading it, I thought, you know what, it would be interesting to get the mindset um, of, of someone who has been in prison or is currently in prison. And I started writing letters, and if you remember last week, uh, we had a letter written by, by a gentleman in prison, which I, he is going to go through the book of Ephesians with us and kind of give his insight to the book of Ephesians as a current inmate. Now, many of you asked me last week, were really impacted by his letter and asked if you could write him back. And uh, I asked the family and they said that would be great and he would really appreciate that. So what we did is if you'd like to write him, uh, there's, we made postcards over there. We, had, we bought postcards uh, and uh, we put his address on there. So all you got to do is write a letter of encouragement uh, back to him if you would like to. So this week we're going to be in chapter 2, and I received a letter from him, and I wanted to read it to you guys uh, on his take on Ephesians chapter 2. To the members of E3, Ephesians 2 speaks to the heart of an inmate in its opening with precision. It says that we were living in our spirit sins and lawless ways, and in fact, were dead. We're in some sort of guilt more obvious than in prison. How can an inmate hide from accusation, the accusation of lawlessness? No one here is because of high attendance in Sunday school <laughs> or because of excessive generosity, simply lawlessness. The chapter goes on to say that we were without hope and without God. Without hope is an understatement. I placed all my hope and trust in the world and was utterly broken when it failed me. 
When you are sentenced to a considerable amount of years in prison time, the phrase without hope takes on new meaning. It seems as though God is allowed for me to see and feel hopelessness so that I might fully comprehend and appreciate authentic hope. Not the illusion of hope for things and events the world offers, but the real thing. Not a mirage of happiness that tempts us to trust in the world, but an everlasting commitment in the truth. The chapter also tells me that I've been given life and that Christ himself is my peace. Nothing could be more true. I am more alive now, confined and restricted, than I ever was before my incarceration. I have less daily choices to make, obviously, yet I have more power over the church choices that I do make. God has given me life in the most ironic way, by taking from me what I considered my life. I was once free in the world, but enslaved by the world. Now I'm confined by the world, yet free of the world. The peace in Him that I have found transcends these circumstances. It is an unusual place to find peace, but it's peace nonetheless. It's the truest form of peace in life that a person can experience. And its authenticity is only verified by the broken promises of the world that surround me in the form of this prison. Let's pray. Dear God, not many of us know what it is like to be in a physical prison behind bars, but we all do know what being imprisoned by sin is, being imprisoned by things that erode our soul, being imprisoned by things that, that take from us when originally we thought we were taking from it. The prison of hopelessness, the, the prison of depression, the, the prison of addiction. God, I just pray that as we go through this letter that we will truly understand what true hope is and what we will understand is true peace. And ultimately, we will understand true freedom. We love you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you open up your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2, uh, in this section of Paul's letter to Ephesus, uh, he goes in and he, he, again he's reminding us that, that we were once dead, and, but now we are alive in Christ. And the imagery of death and life is very prevalent through the Bible. It's a very prevalent theme. And it's probably the, the easiest to, uh, for us to understand that, we, that when we see someone who is alive, we can, we can see animation, we see expression. And when we see something that's dead, it, it's just done. There's nothing more to it. But sometimes I think that the imagery uh, is a little difficult for us to understand if we've never truly experienced brokenness or if we haven't come to grips with, with our current broken situation. Uh, I went many, many years uh, in my life, into my adult life, deceiving myself of how well I was doing. And there comes a, comes a point 
where that facade will come crashing down and you find yourself then truly understanding the, the, the need for something larger in your life. And then you start to understand this whole imagery of what life and death is. And, and in fact, when you start to realize that you've only ever known death, you've never really tapped in and experienced true life. The, the understanding that, that things are much larger than we are currently experiencing. And life is so much more than just having a pulse or being able to inhale and exhale air. In fact, let me put it this way. If your existence was merely existing, chances are you would no longer want to exist. The, the truest sense, the, the thing that we appreciate about life is, is not so much the things that make it possible, but make it worth living. And Paul is reminding us of what real true life is and how we can be made alive in Christ. So he starts out in verse 1, he says, Once you were dead because of your disobedience and your many sins. Again, sin is the thing that separates us from the holiness of God. You used to live in sin, just like the rest of the world, obeying the devil, the commander of the powers in the unseen world. He is the spirit at work in the hearts of those who refuse to obey God. All of us used to live that way, following the passionate desires and inclinations of our sinful nature. By our very nature, we are subject to God's anger, just like everyone else. I love how Paul writes where he, he just kind of puts it out there and, and he just says, look, this is the reality of the situation. No real flowery, flowery uh, language or, or anything like that. He's like, look, we are all in the same boat. All of us have things, self, a self-destructive nature. All of us have introduced things into our, into our lives that, that separate us from the absolutely pure God absolutely pure creator of the universe. And something by its very nature of being absolutely pure cannot have blemish. And each and every one of us have introduced this into our lives. And he's saying, look, we're all dead. We all are dead because of this. And God had to do something if he truly wanted to have a relationship with us, and God did. And this is the amazing thing. We talked about this a little bit last week. The amazing thing about God and being a follower of Christ, it is unlike religion. You see, religion is God's attempt to get to God. And every world religion is based around a set of, of steps to get to God. All of them, there is no exception. Islam, uh, 
Buddhism, uh, Zen, whatever. There's, there's things that you must do to get to God. And this is why Christianity truly isn't, in its purest form, is not a religion. You see, because it's not, we cannot do anything to get to God. There's no steps, there's, there's no works. You can't be generous enough. You, you can't do enough good works. You can't help enough little old ladies across the street. You know, there's no cosmic scale where is being weighed when you assume room temperature and you're standing in front of God and they start piling on the, on the scale. Okay, you helped a little old lady across the street. You, you know, gave to the United Way. Uh, you know, you, you know, s- served in the red eye and stuff like that. But, you know, you lied and you cheated and you stole and you're like, oh boy, I hope it, hope it all levels out or at least, you know, it tips the scale, scale tips a little bit in my favor so I can get in. That's just not the way it works. I mean, think about that. Think about any relationship that you have. That's not how it works. There's, there's no kind of scale kind of thing. It's either you're in a relationship or you're not. And what Paul is saying here is like, look, there is a totally different system here. That there is no way that you can work yourself into heaven. That it is a, it is a gift that God pursues us. That life, true life, flows from God. I mean, think about that and the magnitude of that thought of God, actually, the creator of the universe, seeks us out and desires for us to be in relationship with him. It's an amazing thought. And a lot of times, I think especially those of us who were raised in the church, we have some cloudiness about what God actually did for us. And, and Paul here tells us what God actually did. In verse 4, he says, look, he loved us. He says in verse 4, but God is so rich in his mercy and he loved us so much. Uh, in John 3, 6, it says, God loved us so much that he sent his only son to die for us so none of us would have to perish, but all of us can experience eternal life. You see, this, this idea that, that God pursues us, that, that God actually equals love. And love in truest form encapsulates this desire to see somebody raise up and grow and be completely the person that they've been designed to be. He also liberated us in verse 5 that even though we were dead because of our sins, he gave us life when he raised Christ from the dead. And then he says, it is only by God's grace that you have been saved. There again, re- reiterating the, the fact that, look, we didn't do it. That each and every one of us, the only reason that we can call God our Father is because he pursued us. That none of us can 
do works or do enough things. You would think differently how you see some people act. Some people, you know, thinking, oh my gosh, you know, I am, I'm God's gift to God. Right? I'm so holy. I'm, I, you know, God's lucky that I'm one of his kids. I don't know where this mentality comes from because it's definitely not in the Bible. All of us have messed up. All of us are broken and messy if we realize it or not. I even uh, was sitting in a cafe once and I heard a couple of ladies. I was totally eavesdropping. You do it too, but... <laughs> But uh, I was sitting there in the booth, and they're, they're talking. And they're talking about this guy who was not a Christian. And they're like, oh, I wish he'd become a Christian. He would make such a good Christian. Like he, he, they started talking about all the good things he does and how he would be a good representation of what a good Christian would be. And I was just sitting there, and I was just like, oh, I want to say something so bad. You know, it's like they're recruiting people that fit the mold. That's backwards. I mean, that's like, it's like, all right, look, you, you've made it. That you can come into our club because you've shown that, that you're good enough and you're smart enough. And gosh darn it, people like you. Quite the opposite is true. Really, we need the people who are dumb and, and, you know, people don't like them and things like that. Why? Because, you know what? When God transforms them, and they realize maybe they're not dumb after all. Maybe they're actually likable and you start realizing you know what this is God's transforming power in someone's life that's why we say look the only deal about e3 is when you walk through the doors is that you want to pursue who God is and what he wants for your life that's it we're not looking for applicants who fit the mold. I think one of the coolest things about E3 is many times when I look out, it looks like heaven. We see such a variety of, of different people from all different walks of life. And guess what? That's what heaven is going to look like. So he liberated us in verse 6. He lifted us. Verse 6, for he raised us from the dead along with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms because we are united with Christ. And this is a theme that we're going to see throughout Ephesians is this unity. This unity that transcends all divides. So why did God do it? Paul tells us, he says, so God can point to us in the future ages as examples of of the incredible wealth of his grace and kindness toward us, as shown in all he has done for us who are united with Christ Jesus. Basically, what God is saying here, letting us know why he did it, 
because he loved us so much, but also to show how great he is. So future generations can say, wow, God is truly great that he reached in and, and, and adopted these people into his family. Continues in verse 8, says, God saved you by his grace when you believed. And you can't take credit for this. It's a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things we have done. So none of us can boast about it. And then the next verse, if you've been around E3 for any length of time, you know that this verse has been quoted again and again and again. And today's no different. For we are God's masterpiece. He has created us anew in Christ Jesus so we can do the good things he planned for us long ago. Now, I gave some additional thought to why I'm so impacted by this scripture. I think it really goes back to when, when I realized I was spiritually dead. I thought of myself as a piece of um, garbage, a piece of refuse. I didn't think of myself as a masterpiece. You know, some people may look at someone and say, oh, okay, they got their act together. But if you're truly honest with yourself, you know. I mean, you know your hang-ups. You know your faults. You, you know the places that you stumble and you're broken. And God saying, look, you're my masterpiece. And internally, you can't reconcile that. And you sit there and go, well, how, how can that be true? And, and I remember really struggling with this whole idea. Now, how can I truly be God's masterpiece when I'm such a screw-up? And I remember watching a movie, and it, and, it, and, and it came real to me. It was one of those movies, you know, one of those crime drama things. I love those. And uh, where somebody steals something and it's a big caper and all this kind of stuff. And there's the cat and mouse game between the police and the criminals and all that kind of stuff. Well, this person had stolen a masterpiece, an absolute masterpiece. And, and the, the cops were trying to find them. And, and finally, they got hold of all of their stuff, but they couldn't find the masterpiece and then the cop figured out to bring in an expert to look at the pieces because there was one particular painting that didn't seem to fit it was one of those paintings of of the uh of the dogs smoking cigars playing poker you know that one what you ever wonder why we would all that's like the dumbest piece of art ever it was like we all know it we've all seen it and it's all up there it's like you know somebody's in there going like i got a great idea for a painting i have a dogs yeah yeah i like dogs smoking cigars 
playing poker. Oh, I'd buy that. You know, it's like, you know, they make prints of it and everything. Uh, but so they, what they did was they looked and somehow they were able to look past the dog smoking cigars, playing poker, and saw the true masterpiece. I said, holy cow, that's me. My life is the, the dog's smoking cigars, playing poker. And what they did was they started to scrape that away. They had the experts scrape it away very gently to reveal the true masterpiece underneath. And that is the process. Those of us we are God's masterpiece. Unfortunately, through years of, of abuse and years of junk in our lives, we've painted dogs smoking cigars, playing poker. And we don't resemble the masterpiece that you have been created to be. And it takes unity in Christ of people breathing life and encouraging you to strip away the things that's covering the true masterpiece that you are. We do that through growth groups and Bible studies and corporate worship gatherings and all of those kind of things. But so many people, it's like, I want to be a masterpiece now. And it's like, you are, but we just can't see it quite yet. And it's gonna, it took you 20, 30, 40 years to paint over the masterpiece. And it's going to take years to strip that away so we can truly see the woman or man that God has created you to be. He continues, don't forget that you Gentiles used to be outsiders. You were called uncircumcised heathens by the Jews. It's not very friendly, is it? Who were proud of their circumcision, even though it affected only their bodies and not their hearts. In those days, you were living apart from Christ. You were excluded from citizenship among the people of Israel. And you did not know the covenant promises God had for you and have been united with Christ. Once you were far from God, but now you've been brought near to him through the blood of Christ. The imagery here that Paul is trying to convey that is absolutely essential for us is that when we have not been brought close into God, that, that we feel separated. And what Paul is really talking about is Herod built a temple for the Jews in Jerusalem. And... In this temple, it was modeled after Solomon's temple. And in the center of the temple, there was this place called the Holy of Holies. And they believed that the Spirit of God actually lived, dwelled in the Holy of Holies. And once a year, a priest would go in there to do whatever he was going to do. And he would have to get ceremonially clean. Like make sure that, you know, he's forgiven and, sa and done sacrifices up, you know, to that point that he didn't walk in with really any sin because they believed that God would strike him dead if he wasn't absolutely pure. Because remember, something absolutely pure and something that's not pure cannot, 
coexist. So what they would do, though, just in case the person wasn't, you know, they had some sort of hidden sin that they didn't talk about, they didn't want them to get struck dead and die and rot in the Holy of Holies. It'd smell bad, things would get in there, stuff like that. So this is what they do. They tie a rope around their ankle, and they walk, you know, let rope in, and then, like, if they hear a thump or something, or, like, lightning strikes in there and everything, they're like, oh, Bob wasn't being true. Pull him out, you know. Next. You know, that kind of thing. So that, you know, to actually be with God, I mean, it was a very rare thing that would happen. This is the imagery that Paul's trying to communicate, that, that very, very few could ever be in the presence of God. Then there was the next court that was around the Holy Holies where kind of the priests hung out. Then there was another one where Jews could come and they could offer up their, their um, uh, sacrifices and things like that. And then outside of that was the court of the Gentiles. As close as they could come to God. And there he's saying, look, you were once far from God, but now you can go right in the Holy of Holies. That's why the the symbolism of when Christ died on the cross, if you remember what happened in the Holy of Holies, the curtain was ripped in half that separated man from God. And there was an earthquake that broke it open. I mean, just that being kind of cool in itself. But just think about the imagery. What was God saying? is like, look, what Christ did on the cross, now you have direct access to me. That you do not have to go through an intermediary anymore. And why? What Christ did on the cross, he destroyed all barriers. Or at least... He made it possible for all barriers to be destroyed. You see, we as people, we erect all sorts of barriers. We erect socioeconomic barriers. I mean, just think about how our neighborhoods are made. We have Golden Eagle, we have Southwood, we have Killarne Lakes, we have Frenchtown. These are all areas. These are kind of socioeconomic areas that we have erected. But Christ says, no place for that in heaven. No place for that in my kingdom. We have all sorts of racial boundaries, barriers that that we have erected. We have black churches, we have white churches, we have Asian churches. We have things, dark things inside us that mistrust people that that don't look like us or come from the same background as us. There's no place for that. There's no place for that in the kingdom of God because Christ died for unity, not division. 
says that we are to be all united. You know what? One thing that just blows my mind, house churches in China, communist China, and then the mega churches here in the United States that we openly worship, which what a blessing that is, right? Because there's people in China who, who are hiding their faith because they'll be killed and persecuted because of it. That, you know what? The kingdom of God knows no nationality. Doesn't that just blow you away that in China, probably right now, there's probably people going through the book of Ephesians, just like we are right now, worshiping the same God, and someday we're going to compare notes with them in eternity. Just think about the magnitude of that. It's absolutely incredible. Because of Christ's death, we are all one body. Verse 14, for Christ himself has brought peace to us. He united Jews and Gentiles into one people when in his own body on the cross, he broke down the walls of hostility that separated us. He did this by ending the system of law in which commandments and regulations. He made peace between Jews and Gentiles by creating in himself one new people from two groups. When the accuser, when Satan is able to divide, that is a victory. That when people who both claim that they're followers of Christ can't come into one room and worship the same God because of their race or their socioeconomic background or because of a doctrinal view, the enemy has won. Christ died so we can all be united in him. It doesn't get any clearer than that. He died so the hostility between us would end, not that it would be taken to a new level. Together as one body, Christ reconciled both groups to God by means of his death on the cross and our hostility toward each other was put to death. He brought this good news of peace to you Gentiles who were far from him and peace to the Jews who were near. I heard a story about a guy who uh, was walking along and he, and, he, and he saw somebody on a bridge ready to jump off. And he runs up to him and he says, Brother, he says, what are you doing? And he said, I just, I'm hopeless. I don't want to live anymore. And he said, well, do you know Jesus Christ? He goes, oh yeah, I go to church every Sunday. And he says, praise God. What kind of church do you go to? He goes, I go to a Baptist church. He says, praise the Lord. He says, you got so much to live for. And he's all like, well, what, what division of Baptists? And, and he says, Oh, you know, uh, I'm, I'm the Southwest Baptist. He goes, praise God, me too, brother. 
He says, wow, you got so much to live for. And he says, are you, what, what part of the convention are you from? The, the, the uh, pre-1977 or, or post-77? He says, pre-77. He says, oh, die, heathen. What are we doing? Isn't it one God who died for all of us? How can it be that we can't worship the one God together? Christ died for our unity. That we can be brothers and sisters in Christ no matter what country we are currently a citizen of, no matter what our socioeconomic background is, no matter what our ethnicity is, no matter what denomination that we were brought into, that we are to be His church united in Jesus Christ. Christ. And because of his death, we have all direct access to the Father. Now all of us can come to the Father through the same Holy Spirit because of what Christ has done. And he goes on, because of his death, we're no longer strangers or foreigners. So now you Gentiles are no longer strangers or foreigners. You are citizens along with all of God's holy people, you are members of God's family. I don't know about your family, but in my earthly family, we don't have divisions or of, of who came from where or at what time. Even if we viciously disagree with one of their political views or something else, guess what? We're still family. And Christ died for us to transcend political party, nationality, race, socioeconomic circumstance. And finally, we are joined together because of Christ's death. Verse 20, together we are his house built on a foundation of the apostles and the prophets. And the cornerstone is Christ Jesus himself. We are carefully joined together in him, becoming a holy temple for the Lord. Through him, you Gentiles are also being made part of this dwelling where God lives by his spirit. So next time we see someone who's not like us, maybe we need to look at them with fresh eyes and see them as someone who Christ died for. Someone who has a God-shaped void in their lives. Who God has created to have a relationship and is pursuing. And maybe you're the person, maybe you're the only glimpse of God that that person will ever see. We are to be ambassadors of Christ. We are to be united in Christ. We are to 
take on the characteristics and strip away the things that are distracting us from showing the world that we are God's masterpiece. Let's pray. Dear God, just uh, thank you for this day. Thank you for your church. We're all too many times hurting and broken. We stumble. God, I just pray that we can transcend the pettiness that we often exhibit. The, the fear of something different. That you will challenge us to transcend the noise and be the love. In Jesus' name, amen.